Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Because that's true, let's open our Bibles to John chapter 16 is where we are in our journey through the gospel of John. We're going to look at verses 16 through 24 this morning. As you're finding that, I, I just want to say I'm so glad you're here. I'm just really glad to see you. Um, sometimes we get caught up in doing the service. You know, we got to start at a certain time, and we got to do a few things, which are all wonderfully ordained by God, and then we leave. Um, I just sometimes wish I could just have a conversation with each of you and ask you how you're doing and give you a hug. And um, So actually, to that end, maybe not every single one of you, but I, and it's not because you need to meet me, but it's because I want to meet you. If I don't know you, I'm just going to be hanging out by those doors at the end of service, and I'd love to just look you in the eyes and say hi. I'm just really glad that you're here today. I have a thought for you before we get into this text. I think one of the most challenging things about the Christian life is that the Bible is so full of objective truths that are true, regardless of what we feel like. That's, that's an objective truth. It's, it's true. God is holy. Jesus died on the cross and rose again, defeated death, sin, and the grave that heaven is a place of eternal, ever-increasing joy, that no matter how wicked you have been, that if you will turn and trust in Jesus, not because of anything good in you, not because of anything that you have done, but simply because of God becoming flesh and laying down His Son on the cross to bear the weight of His wrath for you, it will be extinguished, removed as far as the east is from the west, You will be reconciled, redeemed, justified, adopted into God's family, and you will spend eternity with him where you will experience ever-increasing joy in a world without end. These are objective truths that are true according to Scripture, regardless of whether or not we feel like they're true or not. But the reality is most of us live in the world of subjective feelings, and those are real things. It's the way we feel. And I think that part of the challenge of the Christian life is that at times there can be such a gap, such a canyon between what we read and in one sense believe with our minds to be true about the promises of the glory of the gospel and all that he promises to us in Christ And the difference between that and what we are actually experiencing and feeling in the moment. And what can happen for us is that because that gap can be so big and because, quite frankly, we live in the age of the lack of resilience. We are conditioned by our world to just give in and consider ourselves unworthy or victimized or just don't having what it takes. We just kind of settle for this gap. 
And, and I think this morning in our text, there is a promise from Jesus that, that if we're not careful, if we don't do some work, if we don't roll up our sleeves, if we don't just stare at it and just, just consider that we are going to, we are going to, as Paul says in Philippians, forget those things which are behind and press forward to that thing which lies ahead. We, we are in the sort of dangerous place of letting this glorious truth that we're about to read just sort of hang up in the heavens and never let it actually land down in our hearts so that we can wrestle with it and maybe not experience it in all the joy that we will someday in eternity, but we just will just give up what God intends for us to have here on this earth. And so I want us to fight for seeing that gap and, and not being okay with it. Amen? All right, let me read the text. So as you know, we're in the middle, or really at the end of Jesus' final discourse, his final farewell, farewell address, his public ministry has ended, and he's in the room with his disciples. Judas has already ran out of the room, plotting his betrayal. This is the night, the occasion of the Last Supper. And this is Jesus' final instruction in ministry privately to his disciples, often called, this is John chapter 13 through 16, the final farewell address or discourse of Jesus. And then John chapter 17 is one of the most glorious chapters in all of the Bible. It is Jesus' high priestly prayer that he prays to the Father for his disciples and all of his people after this discourse. And then we get into the events 24 hours later of Jesus' betrayal and arrest, crucifixion, and resurrection. John 16, verse 16. Remember, the disciples are nervous. They're anxious. They're wondering what's going to happen. Jesus is telling them. He's equipping them for the difficulty, the suffering, the persecution that will await them. And he says in verse 16, a little while... And you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? And I love that. I mean, they're with him. They've walked with him all three years, and they're a little confused. Praise God. That's strangely encouraging. (laughs) They quote him and say, a little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me scratching their head almost, and because I am going to the Father, which is something he said a little bit earlier. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. And Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Verse 20, verse 20 is the heart of this passage Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Verse 21, he gives an analogy, an illustration of what he's just said. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Verse 22, it's essentially a repeating of what he said in verse 20. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will 
take your joy from you. Verse 23, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Okay, I think this text is relatively clear. Jesus is approaching his, his crucifixion and his resurrection. He has been alluding to that and telling his disciples that that is what is going to happen. And I think that is exactly what he's telling them here, that he needs to explain to them more fully. He's saying, just on the surface in verse 16, a little while you will see me no longer. In other words, he's going away. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be crucified on a cross, and then again a little while, and you will see me. I think that is a direct and clear reference to his resurrection. In other words, he's going to go away, he's going to die, he's going to be put in a tomb, but then he, you're going to see me again. And he then elaborates on this. He tells them what their experience of all this is going to be. In verse 20, he says, you will weep and lament, meaning at my crucifixion. And the world, in a sense, on that dark day, on that Good Friday that we know of, now know of as Good Friday, which was a very bad Friday in a sense, the world, will, thinking that it is one, will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but sorrow will turn into joy because the grave will be empty, the tomb will be rolled away, and I will defeat death, sin, and the grave, and you will see me, you will see me again. And in context, Jesus is referring to his immediate death and crucifixion and resurrection that will cause the emotional roller coaster of the disciples' lives to go very, very low to very, very high. That's what Jesus is, is saying to them. And so here's the point, I think, of what Jesus is saying, because this is in context. This is written about the events that will proceed in about the next 72 hours. And so the, the, the context of Jesus' words that you will have sorrow for a moment, that, but you will have that sorrow turn into joy, how does that apply to us? Clearly, there's something more going on than just Jesus forecasting for them, narrating for them what is going to happen in the next 72 hours. It is a kind of picture of the Christian life. It's a picture of the work of Christ. It's the picture of the experience of every Christian. And so here's the point that I want us to see from this, this passage. There's really just one point, and then I'm going to make a couple applications. But the point is this, is that the resurrection of Jesus secures, whether we feel like it or not, it secures the earthly and eternal joy of a Christian. The resurrection of Jesus, the life, the death, the crucifixion, the sin-bearing work of Christ on the cross and his victorious defeat over sin, death, and the grave and the joy that that brought the disciples and the joy that that brings us is the very thing that secures eternal joy for the Christian. Now this joy, you may be thinking, now here's the gap, we're tempted now. You may be thinking, okay, Brad, I think this is probably theologically true, but it is not experientially true for me in my life. And to, all of the, to that, all of us can say to one degree or another, we get it, amen. 
Here's the point that we got to get in before we wrestle with understanding what this joy is. This joy is both, in one degree, already ours, but not yet fully realized. This joy is not a promise of earthly bliss or wealth or comfort or success or ease. It is what Paul speaks of to the Philippians. It's a peace that is otherworldly. It's a peace. It's a joy. It's a a peace that passes understanding. It is the condition, the fruit of the redeemed and reborn soul. It is summed up by what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12. And I love this because at the beginning, before this text, it's one of those verses that picks up halfway through the sentence. And Paul is talking about his suffering as an apostle of Christ. And so in verse 12, 2 Timothy chapter 1, he says, This is why I suffer as I do. But listen to his logic. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So Paul is saying, I know who Jesus is and what he's done for me. And we can fill in the blanks there and talk about the earthly and eternal joy that Jesus is speaking about to his disciples. That is Paul's and everyone who is in Christ is ours. He says, I know that he has it and I know that he's keeping it for me. And I know that he will guard it until that day. This is the joy that Jesus is speaking about here to his disciples. It's not necessarily a feeling, and we are a culture, we're a generation, we, we are a people that are addicted to the feels, are we not? And there is a huge gap between what Jesus is speaking about here and what we necessarily experience on an everyday level. And the point of this text is to stare at it and shorten that gap. And so here's two truths about this joy that I want us to think about from this text. Two truths, that's it. And by saying that's it, that's not a promise of a short sermon. I don't know why I say things like that. I, I, I don't know why I say things like that. I'm just going to say what I need to say, and when I'm done, I'm done. Uh, that's the way I do it all the time. You know that. You've been around long enough. Okay. Two truths about this joy. First, it's centered on Christ. This joy that Jesus procures, both this earthly joy. Remember, it's already here, but it's not yet fully realized. None of us are walking in complete, heavenly, eternal joy yet. But regardless of whether where you are in the subjective scale of how you feel about what the Lord has done for you, or how you feel about yourself, or whether you have a peace that seems to transcend your current circumstances, know this, that whatever joy you have, if you are in Christ, whatever joy you will experience, this joy that Jesus has promised, not maybe will turn from sorrow into joy, but will turn from sorrow into joy, is centered on the person and work of Christ. It's not centered on circumstances on external blessings, or even on our feelings. It's centered on what Jesus has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. Listen to what Peter says. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. This is a logic, and it's amazing how you see these themes just so, so coherent in Scripture. It's, it's almost, friends, as if the Holy Spirit is authoring and superintending the whole Bible, you know, because he is. 
First Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. Listen to this. He has caused us to be born again. So you were dead, but now you've been made alive. Who's doing it? All God. He has caused us to be born again. How did he do it? To a living hope. How? Through, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So those who are dead that God intends to save, somehow in the beauty of his mysterious, glorious Lord mind, he puts you in Christ. Christ bears your wrath on the cross. He removes it as far as the east is from the west. He takes away the penalty for our sin. It's forgiven. And then he doesn't stay dead. He rises again. So we die with Christ on the cross in a sense spiritually, and we rise with him in victory over death, sin, and the grave. That's what it means to be born again. And God, when he saves a person, he unites you. He makes you alive. He gives you a heart that can believe and trust in this. And that faith that you exercise because Jesus, because when your heart has been made alive, Jesus, when you can see him, when you can see what he's done, and you see your life, and you see how worthless your own righteousness is, he is altogether lovely. He is, as the theologians put it in centuries past, he becomes, when God gives you eyes and a new heart, he becomes irresistible. He becomes so beautiful that you can't help and joy and love to put your trust in him. And that faith that is a gift unites you to Jesus. So all of what was accomplished, listen to this, all of what he did in his death is yours and all of what he won in his resurrection is yours. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's how you're born again. Not because you decided to square your life away or make yourself better. Those might have been the things that you were thinking sort of in your human level, and I'm not dogging that. Those are maybe good thoughts to have. But friends, that is all a consequence of the Lord's Spirit at work underneath all of that in your life, causing you to desire what you previously could not desire because your heart was dead. And he makes you alive. Jesus' death accounted for you. Jesus' resurrection accounted for you. Now you're in him. Now listen, verse 4, back to 1 Peter. He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. That's eternity. That's heaven. That is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6, listen to this. In this, in this, what's this? It's what Peter has just explained, this salvation that is yours now, it's already yours, but it's not yet fully realized because in some sense it's being kept in heaven for you. In this, right now, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various, I love how the Bible just tags us, you know, and yeah, and oh, by the way, life is hard. <laughs> Amen. So this truth, this joy is centered on Christ, what he's done. See this now, friends, see this. Here's the point I'm trying to make. It is objectively true. 
It's true about you. It's true about you regardless of whether you read your Bible this week faithfully. It's true about you whether or not you are still struggling with that sin that seems to keep rearing its ugly head in your life. It's true about you even if you yelled at your spouse and you had a terrible week parenting. If you are in Christ, if your heart is new, if you've been born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and your hope is secure, in this you can rejoice. It's true about you regardless of how you feel, dear one. That's what Jesus is saying, I think, in verse 16. He's alluding to it. There's these beautiful double entendres in John. There's these beautiful double meanings. Jesus is saying in verse 16, remember, he says, you will see me. But there's this beautiful sort of meaning to the verb that he chooses in the original language to use in verse 16. He says, you will see me. It's not just you will physically see me. Like, oh, well, there's Jesus. I saw him physically. But it's a deeper meaning. It's a, it's a kind of knowing and inwardly appropriating of, of a person. And that's what Jesus, you, you will see me. I will have accomplished this and you will know me. That's what I think Paul is talking about in Ephesians 1, verse 16 and 17 and 18. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. He's praying for the Ephesian church. He says, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him having your the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. So Jesus is saying, post-resurrection, there's going to be a new way that you're going to see me. You're going to see me and everything that I've been doing in my earthly ministry is going to come clearer to you. You're going to see, you're going to know who I am and I'm not just this, this Jewish leader. I'm not just this one that's going to free you from Roman political captivity. Everything that I've been saying is going to come into place and you're going to, you're going to really see me. You're going to know who I am. That's what Jesus is saying. But more importantly, and this is an interesting little textual thing. Jesus says in verse 16 that you will see me, but then actually in verse 22 when he's speaking about after his resurrection, he says, you have sorrow now, but I will see you. So really the most important thing about salvation is is not so much that we see Jesus, but that he sees us and he sees you. He knows us. And joy is centered on the person and work of Christ. So, So let's pause here before we look at the second thing. As friends, let's just admit This is objectively true, but this is the point I've been making. Don't we have work to do to actually apply this in this life? Because when I talk about the the, the fickleness of our subjective feelings, I'm not saying that our feelings are bad. God made us as people, emotional beings. So so don't hear me scolding us for having feelings. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And what God intends for us to do is for us to see this person and work of Christ to see this objective reality, this promise that our sorrow will turn to joy and to, instead of walking away from that objective truth and being governed by our feelings, to do the hard work of pulling our hearts and our emotions and our feelings in line with that objective reality. This is what Paul, this is why I think Paul recounts his conversion so often. He wants to remember the gospel of his salvation. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 through 17. He's saying, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
not people that grew up in healthy homes with a mom and dad who had their head on straight, not people who had a good education or went to Awana or got a lot of VBSs on their, you know, spiritual record or, or whatever the thing that you might think might qualify you as being somebody that, you know, kind of has a leg up spiritually. Paul is saying here, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, which is a description of all of humanity. And then he qualifies it and he says about himself, of whom I am the foremost. The guy who wrote over half of the New Testament sees himself as the worst person he knows. You think there's a gap between what Paul objectively knew about the gospel and how he feels about himself? We see it there in verse 15. But he's not going to stay there. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost Jesus Christ, might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Verse 17 He can't help but break out in worship to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul does not stay at the end of verse 15. He doesn't say, oh, woe's me. You know, I'm just the worst guy in the world, and here I am. You know, don't don't, don't, don't bother me. Just just don't mind me. I'll just sit in the back and do my thing and sing my song. And I'm not dogging on you if you're sitting in the back. I'm just saying pejoratively. You understand? I mean, I mean uh, 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 just saying allegorically, Paul is not staying in his woes me feelings. He lifts his eyes to the objective truth that God has a purpose for his life, has saved him for a reason, and it causes him to break out in the glory of the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God who is worthy of honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul, this is a perfect example here of what we say often. It's one of those little little Christian phrases now. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of the glory and the beauty of who Jesus is. Even today, as we're just sort of feasting on verses like 1 Peter about the work of how Jesus makes his people alive through his resurrection, even that just causes us, it causes us to look away from ourselves for half a moment. That's why gathering together with a church is so important on a regular basis, because even if you don't get anything out of the service that day, what it does is it causes you to stop thinking about yourself for a moment, which is the greatest need of the soul in our age. And it causes us to look away from ourselves up to Jesus. And we see, we see, ah, ah, there is joy. And the gap, day by day, shrinks a little bit here and there every day. So this joy is centered on Christ. And secondly, finally, and this is, this is, this is so contrary, so contrary to the way our world thinks. Jesus is saying that sorrow Sorrow is the pathway to this joy. Look again at verse 20. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Now, again, I want to make the point that Jesus is speaking, the context of this sermon. If this is all that the Bible said about sorrow and joy, I think it might be illegitimate to make the leap in reasoning that I'm about to make. If this was all that the Bible said 
about sorrow and joy, it might be illegitimate. Because the context of this statement by Jesus most immediately is the weekend, over the weekend sorrow that the disciples will experience because of his death that they believe is final as far as they know, only to be turned around by the stunning, glorious, joy-bringing resurrection of Jesus on Sunday. So how, how can we apply this principle of verse 20 that what Jesus is saying here about the historical experience of the crucifixion and the resurrection over the weekend of the disciples, how can we take that and apply that as a principle for the Christian for all time? Well, I think we can do that because I think the rest of the New Testament bears out this principle. I think it's a clear principle in Scripture that God intends to use sorrow not as at times a pathway to joy for his people, but always as a pathway to joy for all of his people to one degree or another. Romans 8, verse 16 through 17. Paul says, The Spirit himself bears, let me prove it to you from these scriptures. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer, or another way we might say that is experience sorrow, with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now that, what Paul is saying there, applies to all Christians. It's not just the narrative historical experience of 12 disciples in this final discourse. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Verse 16, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, you might say suffering, you might call it sorrow, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. One more, James 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. When, not if, when you meet various trials of various kinds. What do trials bring? Sorrow, suffering. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I hope I've proven to you that Paul and James and the New Testament writers are pointing us to an application of this principle that Jesus is speaking to his disciples here in John 16, that you will have sorrow for a moment, but it will turn into joy. This is the great promise of the Scriptures. Now, and I'm not appealing to your personal experience, I think if we're all honest here, if we're all honest, I don't think I, and I think we need to base it on Scripture, but I think what would augment 
and supplement what I've just read to you here from these scriptures and prove the point that I'm trying to make is that to one degree or another, all of us understand that we are experiencing sorrow to one degree or another. Am I right? I didn't see any of you skipping in here this morning. I mean, maybe, maybe you were happy, but we all know we, we taste this sorrow. Sometimes sorrow comes to us from the outside. We live in a fallen world full of diseases, covid Jennifer and I were talking this morning. There's this crazy thing called monkeypox now, apparently, that we all need to run to the hills from. I mean, come on. Can't we catch a break? War. Sickness of various kinds. The sins of others that deeply affect us. And there are people in this room, there are people in this room who subjectively are feeling so sorrowful And I sympathize with them because they have been sinned against so grievously by people that they're close to. Sometimes this sorrow does come from the outside. We we have an adversary, the devil, that he's like a lion. He prowls about, seeking whom he may devour. He he is a thief that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. But sometimes the sorrow doesn't always come from the outside, friends. It's not just everybody out there. We're not a perpetual victim, friends. We are also the perpetrator ourselves. We are all by nature sinners. And even if we've been born again, we still struggle with our sin nature, and that wreaks havoc on our lives. So sometimes our sorrow is something that we bring on ourselves. We all still wrestle with this old man. We all still rebel against God. We all still seek counterfeit pleasures. We all reject God in many ways still, even if we are redeemed and our sin makes us feel distant and doubtful and discouraged and depressed. It makes us angry and irritable and anxious. Think about your own sin, dear one. Think about the sorrow that it has caused you. Think about the thing that you are facing right now, that little area of rebellion in your life and the, the, the emotional turmoil that it has caused you or even is causing you now. And we all are acquainted with this. We all experience sorrow. Here's the point that I want us to make as we come to a close is that, friends, here's this natural reaction, and here's where the Scriptures go the opposite way. By nature, and we have been taught this by, I think, a foolish culture that is addicted to comfort, we all want to run from, star, run from star, sorrow, but instead, Jesus tells us that we are called to walk through it with him. The Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah calls Jesus a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. We read a few months ago in John chapter 11 where one of Jesus' best friends was sick, eventually dies. Jesus eventually gets to the tomb of Lazarus, his friend. Martha and Mary are crying Jesus knows that he is about to bring Lazarus back from the dead. What does Jesus do? Does he shame these sisters for experiencing sorrow and even frustration with him for not getting there earlier? No. The shortest verse in all of the Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. We sang this just a moment ago, Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. He prepares a table before our enemies. 
He prepares a table for us. God doesn't short circuit us. The Christian message is not that he extracts us from a helicopter, like a ranger rescue mission, mission from sorrow and suffering, but he descends down the rope into it with us. That's the hope of the gospel. That I'm experiencing this sorrow, but this is objectively true. And Jesus is not saying, this is just going to happen over a weekend. You know, you're really having a tough time now, brother or sister. But just hold on for a couple days. Something's going to come in the mail. Ed McMahon's going to send you something, and you're going to win the sweepstakes. And anybody under the age of 40 has no idea what I just said. (laughs) But everybody that does, you know what I'm talking about, right? Is this the day that Ed's going to show up? It's about winning money from this stupid racket that used to be a part of our country's culture back in the 70s and 80s. Anyway, the point is, is that things don't immediately get better. The promise of the gospel, the promise of the hope of joy eternal, both earthly and eternal, is not that all of a sudden we're going to be extricated out of our circumstances or that everything is going to be okay, but there is a joy that Jesus gives us because he comes into our sorrow. He bears the weight of all of the consequences of sin on the cross, removes him, defeats it, and then descends, comes through his Holy Spirit to live in us and walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And that, that spirit that dwells in us gives us this abiding joy that says, yes, weeping may endure for the night, which may mean years or decades, but joy, joy comes in the morning. I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have entrusted to him until that day. Now, what about, what about, by the way, just what about before we land this plane? What about what Jesus says in verses 23 and 24? He says, now in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So you're saying, okay, Brad, I'm tracking with you to now. But is what Jesus said in verses 23 and 24 kind of this? false gospel, like prosperity gospel sort of reasoning just attached on, like, okay, just, just as, if you have enough faith, just say it in my name, and he'll get you out of all these sorrows. Is that, what, is that what the resurrection of Jesus has procured for us? Yeah, the disciples had to go through this really terrible weekend. Jesus died on the cross, experienced the wrath of God for us, rose from the grave, defeated death and sin, has given us now this lifetime of comfort, comfort that if we will just say this incantation in the name of Jesus, whatever we ask for in his name, he will give it to us so that we can experience this sort of earthly joy and comfort forever. Is that really what Jesus is saying in verses 23 and 24? No. No. He's saying, in that day you will ask nothing of me, meaning he's going to be physically absent. He will ascend. So like they have been talking to him in person, they won't. Now through the Spirit, in this new age, in this day post-resurrection, he says, then whatever you asked of the Father, here's the key phrase, in my name. In my name doesn't just mean that we tag on English words to the end of our prayers and then all of a sudden it becomes a kind of hocus pocus, you know, genie in a bottle thing that God has bound himself to. 
When Jesus says, in my name, it's speaking about his character and will. So in the first century world, for somebody to speak in somebody's name meant that they were representing his character, his will, his desire. I am here in the name of the sovereign to enact his will in this situation would be a kind of analogy. And so Jesus is qualifying this. He's not just saying, whatever you want, just ask for you know, peace from this, or ask from just to be removed from this situation, or ask for some sort of financial blessing. He's saying that whatever you ask that is in accord with my character and will and desire, God will work in you. He will work in you. You will receive it, and there will be this here now, not just eternity, there will be this joy, this completion, this fullness of joy in you that you you will realize because you are walking with the Lord through the valley of the shadow of death and you will know that you need not fear any evil because you know that the sorrow may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Friends, this is not a mathematical equation. There are no, here's the point I'm trying to make as I end, there are no complicated algorithms and steps I think the point of this passage, what this passage is calling us to do is to go to Jesus and to stay there. Come to him, sick and sore, weak and wounded. Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus with your sorrow, not believing that some hocus-pocus prayer will cause it to be removed in 72 hours, but go to Jesus because he is a man acquainted with sorrows. Go to Jesus because he describes himself in Matthew 11 as gentle and lowly in heart. Go to Jesus, and when you go there, stay there. And when you drift again Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, go back to him on Sunday with all of your brothers and sisters. And get washed off again by the cleansing blood and be refreshed and renewed in the spirit and stay there. And when you get there, don't expect him to take all the pain away because that's not how he works. That's not the point of this verse. It's not that all your sorrow will immediately be gone, but that he will give you a joy in the middle of the sorrow and he will use your endurance as a witness, an aroma, a beautiful, a beautiful display of the surpassing worth of Christ. Go to Jesus and stay there. Trust him to be with you in the pain to give you endurance and perspective, to know that the pain is temporary, to know that the sorrow, the sorrow, although it is a powerful foe, it is a defeated foe, and it will give way. In fact, if you are in Christ, it must give way to the joy that is yours in Christ. Let me pray. Lord, take my words and use them however you intend. Anything that I've said that's been wrong or unhelpful or off, may it fall to the ground. Whatever was from your spirit, may it stick fast and help your people and help us grow in Christ. And for any of my friends that are here that do not trust in you, use it to give them life, new eyes, a new heart, so that they might turn from themselves and trust in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.